When I was a little girl, my favorite place to spend an afternoon was at my grandmother's feet. I listened intently to their stories of struggle and triumph. I leaned on these stories during my family building years, and now that I'm approaching middle age and seek support for my senior years, my grandmothers are gone, and they did not leave their stories behind. So my friends and I have decided to find wisdom in stories from grandmas, grandpas, uncles, and aunties who have managed to thrive and enjoy life during their senior years. We're interviewing ordinary people about extraordinary lessons learned from aging crises. We'll ask professionals to show us how the elders thrive and we invite you to come along. I'm Faiza Coleman-Salako, and this is The Elder Diaries. My caring friend Charlene interviewed Miss Irva Baden of Pennsylvania. Miss Baden's aging crisis left her with the ability to see beyond her limitations. This is episode one, and we've called it New Normal. Your story is regarding a health crisis in your life. Right. You have heard the, um, the phrase, he or she was struck blind. That's what happened. Over probably less than a minute, I lost all vision in my left eye. Nothing else, you know, no sort of things that you think of with a stroke. You know, when you think of a brain stroke, you think of slurred speech or unable to talk or unable to move limbs or anything. No, the only thing that happened was my eyeball went blank is blank. I happened to be luckily at home when this happened. I had actually been out all day and had had a mild headache, but you know, I attributed that to uh, the humidity that we were having for some reason that day. And I'm like, oh, okay, just a headache. But as after I got home, the headache increased and then, you know, sort of quickly, it increased, increased, and then, then it absolutely went away. And then the vision in my eye completely went. So I did have enough presence of mind to say perhaps I should not drive myself to the hospital because uh, this could happen in my other eye, and we don't want that happening while I'm driving. So I called for paramedics, and luckily since I had some background in neurology, I was able to stay calm and say, you need to come and get me. I've had a stroke. I have to say I, I would like to give credit to the paramedics who came who were very solicitous and kind to me and reminded me to get my cell phone and a charger and, you know, all the stuff because I guess they knew I would be in the hospital for a little bit. So after quite some time and many, many tests in the ER, it was determined by a very wonderful ophthalmologist that I had had a stroke and when he was telling me this, he took my hand, bless his heart, he took my hand, and he said, Miss Baden, he said, I have to tell you um, that this is um, permanent and irreversible. And so I'm like, hmm, okay. And I looked at him and I said, could have been a lot worse. And truly, you know, friends have said to me, oh, you were in denial. It's like, no, it could have been a lot worse. I could have been dead uh, or I could have had severe neurological deficits and that didn't happen and I was immediately grateful that 
if I was going to have a stroke, that, you know, this this was all the damage that there was. You know, my my internal process was, well, you know, if I let myself be afraid, I'm not going to, I'm going to lose control, and I have to control this situation. And that, I don't think, in a bad way, um, you know, we sometimes talk about control being bad, but I, I need to stay aware. Yeah, I'm afraid, but I can't let that be the dominant emotion that's happening with me right now. I needed to know what had happened to me and how I would move forward because regardless of anything else that happened, the doctor had said permanent and irreversible. And as much as there was a a, a bit of, I guess, faith that, to me that said nothing is irreversible, from a medical standpoint, from a completely cut and dried medical standpoint, when he explained what exactly had happened. It's like, mm-hmm, I think he's right. Over the course of, you know, the ensuing two years, lots of stuff has come up um, because, in fact, it was a total life-changing event. And um, I was in the hospital for several days and all manner of testing and all manner of, you know, some doctors trying to convince me to do something that I actually had no intention of doing, Um you know, me advocating for myself. So it was a busy, tedious time, and I didn't have a lot of emotions going on because I was sort of like hyper vigilant um, that I could be in control. I was able to call a couple friends, and then, you know, the friend phone chain went out, and several friends came home with me and spent, um, I think, probably spent a couple couple nights in my home getting things set up, getting appointments set up, and sort of modifying some things in my apartment. Now, I had lived in my apartment for 16 years and was certainly familiar with it, but the loss of one one eye means that then there's no depth perception. It was a little difficult actually getting around even even though, you know, I I was well familiar with everything in my in my home. So if I may, yeah. when you say depth perception, can you talk a little bit about what that is or what that means? Sure. So if you're standing at the top of a flight of steps and you have normal vision and you look down, you can tell that there are several steps because your your vision having two eyes actually perceives from each eye and then transmits that information to the brain and the brain says, okay, there's steps and they are different heights and I see where the where one step ends, you know, where the edge of the step is so that I can step down onto the next one. With no depth perception, there is a strong probability that when I look down, everything looks like a flat surface. I would say it like if there's no sort of color like a, a color line at the end of the step, I'm not, I'm not sure how wide that step is or if there is actually another step. Um, and so, as I have done actually three times, oops, maybe four, um, I will step onto what I think is a step, and it's not. It's air. Mm. It just looks the same color as the step before it. Just, I'm sorry, I just was lost in the, I was actually lost in my kitchen just then, in my old apartment, because... Um, Reaching for things, and just a little more about depth perception, reaching for things 
and placing things. Oh, many is the time that I poured tea onto the counter and not into the cup because it's not where I think it is. And then, and those are the things that started to really become pronounced um, several weeks later when, of course, you know, my friends had gone home and um, there were still services, you know, various services coming, but basically I was on my own and I couldn't drive. I could not drive. And I've been an independent woman all my life. I'm 67 now. So I was, what, 65 then. And I was like, I can't just get out of here and go to the grocery store. And if I want to go somewhere, I have to ask someone to take me or ask for help. And I had to admit to myself that that's where I was. It seemed to me that there was no alternative. There was nothing that could be done. There was no help available. There was nothing. And that it made perfect logical sense to end my life. Um, And thank goodness that some part of my brain kicked in and said, oh, hell no. Uh, Thank Uh -uh. thank, thank God. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Uh -uh. Uh -uh. Mm -mm. All them dirty dishes, they can be cleaned up. Oh, yeah. But mm -mm, we're not going down that road. And I actually picked up the phone and called um, my therapist, who I had seen for many years, and I said, I need help. And that was that was a good thing. And, um, of course, all that sort of in the midst of crying, crying my, my eyeballs out, even the bad one. This podcast was made possible with the support of the Helen Plum and Villa Park Libraries. We also benefit from your small and consistent donations. To contribute to the mission and programming of Words Heal Incorporated, please visit our website at wordshealinc.org. We inspire people with exceptional struggles to heal through the words of others. changed and after a good while felt better and started talking to people about how depressed I had been even when I was first talking to the psychiatrist and said I don't feel I'm not doing well he said when is the last time you had a stroke and were blinded in one eye which actually put it in perspective I mean I actually sat up at that point and said oh my god you're right (laughs) you know it's like wow okay Okay, I've lost independence. I've lost income. I may lose my home. Um, I've lost a great deal of self-esteem. Yeah, this makes sense to me. Since then, I have moved forward. I drive now. The retina specialist, he said, legally and technically you can drive. There are people who, who only have one, have vision in one eye. And they can drive. I said, that sounds great. Can I drive your car? Because I'm like, don't be an idiot, you fool. How am I going to drive? But, in fact, after I decided I'm driving, lots of, of things to do, you know, making the car ready for me to drive. It is possible. And I have limitations 
I don't drive between dusk and dawn. Not putting myself in jeopardy, not putting anybody else in jeopardy. I have reclaimed some of the independence that I had, not total, and I still don't like that, but I'm here. Well, that brings me to, you know, tell me about what you were determined to do daily while you were coming to terms with this intense difficulty. In the in the very beginning, I was determined, and that's like shortly after coming home from the hospital, I was determined to do as much as I could. I was just, I was going to be on it. I am, I am black superwoman, whatever, however we want to phrase that. I can do it all. I was just going to be on it. And I was actually, I was going to do everything that I used to be able to do. And it's great in theory. Well, one, you can't see out of one eye. And, you know, you end up walking into the edge of the wall because it's like, oh, I didn't see that there. Things start to change. You know, I had to go through the period of adjustment, which seemed to me to take a long time, but considering the enormity of the issue, it's probably not a long time. And then I have become and still am determined to make the best of the situation. And I'm stubborn. When the uh, vision counselor has come to teach me how to use the cane, you know, what I call the blind girl's cane, and... um, Because it actually, I hate to admit it, but it is helpful. It really is helpful. And to wear an eye patch so that people recognize the fact that I don't have vision because my eye looks normal. My eye actually looks normal. So people don't know that I can't see out of that eye. And if they come up on my left side, I don't see them until they're right in front of me. And then I'm sort of in, you know, fight or flight mode. It's like, whoa, where'd you come from? Are there other resources besides the cane? Oh, yeah, for sure. That made it easier to get things done every day? There are. And listen, there are are agencies out there, actually. One of the things, the discharge planning when I left the hospital um, was a referral to some sort of, um, there's a state agency for, the blind and visually impaired it's from different little agencies around that will come out and assess your apartment. I have, like on the microwave, I have like these little raised buttons so that I, because I can't necessarily see, there's all kinds of things that they bring out for you. A little, there's a template that you can put over a check so that you end up filling it out in the right place. <laughs> and you sign on the right line, there's a lot of amazing stuff. I have a large face watch that I have to admit, I don't wear so much because it's kind of ugly, but I can see it. There are applications for your computer, actually. I mean, you can get dictating stuff, which I have on on my phone and my iPad, but um, there's also ways that you can increase the size of things on your computer, and they will come out and show you that. So there's really lots of good stuff. You are powerful, powerful. Your story is just wonderful, and we thank you so much for sharing it with us. Very welcome. Thank you for bringing this out of me. (laughs) You're welcome for that. This podcast has been brought to you by Words Heal Incorporated. Not all views and opinions expressed are those of Words Heal. The identities of some participants have been changed to preserve privacy.
If you have an ordinary experience from age 50 and beyond, which left you with extraordinary lessons learned, we'd love to share your story. Call 630-923-5417 or email us at elderdiaries at wordshealinc.org. I was very impressed with Ms. Baden's story, but I must admit it scared me a little. I doubt that I could face such a potentially devastating situation and come out as well as she has. I decided to interview a mental health professional to try and identify what Ms. Baden did well. I hoped to get some tools, tips, and strategies that I could use in my own life when I face a crisis. I chose Ms. Makeda Bay of Maryland. She's the CEO and founder of the Resilience Therapy Center. Much of her advice revolved around a word that I hear a lot but know very little about resilience. It turns out resilience is the key to Miss Baton's healing story. Resilience is an individual's ability to bounce back. In other words, to stay strong or use effective solutions to handle life's challenges, changes, or their urgent demands. So using these resilient skills that you have can help when facing a range of problems from everyday stress to significant life crises while maintaining and even growing as an individual. What if we aren't particularly strong when a crisis hits? It hits us at a bad time or when we're vulnerable and aren't very positive about our lives. Where do we get that resilience? These resilience skills can be learned. They are innate skills, though. That means that we already have them. They're present in us, but just in varying degrees. So you may face challenges in one area of your life, but not necessarily in other areas of your life. You're doing strength training, like you're going to a physical therapist. You're providing that build on the strength that you already physically have and so that you can avoid injury and any further issues that go on with you. You're developing those healthy patterns of thinking, and then it also requires regular and skillful workouts, or else you will revert back to your default mental and emotional states, which may not be the best place for you to be. As you listened to Ms. Baton's interview as a professional, what are some of the things that stood out to you that she did right? She decided to move positively forward, not just move forward. You have skills that you work through uh, that you build on. And like I said, just like a muscle, you tone it, you need to flex it, you need to practice with it so that you can grow. Anything you put your energy towards will grow. It's really a matter of how you handle your situations and how you can use those skills and those tools. You have them. It's in your toolbox. It's just a matter of when to pull those out and how hard and fast to use them. Charlene was so gracious to help with interviewing, and I am happy for the help, but I really wanted to meet Miss Baden. Just reading her brief intro when she first contacted us to share, it was an amazing story to me. Losing her livelihood, her home, living alone through all of this. One of the things that struck me the most, we hear a lot about positive self-image and having a good opinion of yourself, but her self-awareness as a strong black woman, that whole image, is actually not what helped her. It was her faith, and she didn't necessarily consider herself a woman of faith. Yes, oh, I would love to have met her myself, but she had actually quite a few statements that were really, uh, really showed that she was a, a resilient person, just had those you know, innate qualities and really showed it in the way she was talking about the challenges that she faced. One specific moment where she was talking about her ophthalmologist, and he took her hand and said, this is permanent and irreversible. Instead of just falling out, her response was, it 
could have been worse. She told people that they thought she just maybe was in shock or in denial. Her response was, if I let myself be afraid, then I will lose control. And I have to stay mm. in control of this situation. I have to have mm-hmm. faith that nothing is re- irreversible. She didn't decide to, to mire in the negative aspect of what's happening. She looked at the situation as half full rather than half empty. So for someone like Ms. Baden, who so naturally and effectively taps into their innate resilience skills, how could you as a therapist help them? It's helpful for someone else to point them out. You have this golden ticket that's inside of you, this go and you can do and you can be anything, but you may not recognize you even have that. And what I do is I pull that out of that person and put it in their hand and say, look at this. You have this wonderful gift right here. What can you do with it? How can you utilize this to make sure that your life can go on despite the life crises that you've encountered or the challenges that you face? And it wasn't just her faith. She did also have the support system. She had her friends there remember who stayed with her for a couple nights helping her to situate her home because of her limited vision her death perception was off it's helpful to also have those those supports with you they don't always have to be a family member they don't necessarily have to be friends either just some people to help support you to get through that situation in almost every interview i've noticed a rock bottom point there's a point in the crisis where it seems the person could get no lower, no sadder, and no more vulnerable than at that very moment. And I'm so grateful to Ms. Baton and all of the narrators for letting us share their rock bottom points. Hers included a very brief moment where she actually considered suicide. And I was surprised. I, I think she surprised herself for having those thoughts. That's where she was. It just made perfect sense for her at that point to end her life. And that's a scary place to be. So she took it out herself and saw it for what it is and said, wait a minute, this is not where I want to be. I need help. And that takes a lot of energy and self-thought to realize that you really can't do this on your own. And so that's when she reached out to her, I think it was her psychiatrist, who were a little bit more about her situation and said she instantly felt better when she was able to talk to someone about her situation and really get the help that she needed. But at first, she needed to identify what the problem is so that she can go and get the help she needed. So that was powerful for her. Please tell us more about how you begin to identify what's not going so well with a client and how you help to reverse that. What I do is strength-based therapy and coaching. I focus on the strengths that a person has and not necessarily their weaknesses. We all tend to talk more about our weaknesses and what's wrong and not enough about what's right and what our strengths are and what we are able to accomplish and able to do. important to focus on the strengths rather than our shortcomings because then we can build on those. Whatever you put your energy towards, that is what will grow. We want to build on your positive strengths and how you can accomplish your goals and not constantly being reminded of the negative things that you're not able to do. I have to tell you that it seems almost impossible for us to erase years of negative self-talk. I mean, as you say this, I think of the fact that many of us as part of our cultures are raised to internalize the negative messages that we get from our parents, from the environment, from the world about ourselves. And then we often have intimate relationships that help to further that negative self-speak. How do we undo years of negative programming? You want to make sure that you're, you're can 
list is a lot longer and you have more interest or uh, put more energy towards that than your can't list because you always have that can't list but trying to build on what you can do and what you're able to do and also keeping your self-talk positive making sure that what you're telling yourself and how you're thinking about things is in a positive light instead of saying oh no I have to go to physical therapy again and say wait a minute I get to go to physical therapy again see it's that get to instead of I have to very slight, but it really makes a difference in how you are thinking about something and how you're going to frame it. Also, it's how you're going to approach that specific goal or activity. So it's important that you do these things yourself. It takes some practice to do that because you're not used to it. But those are really important things. It changes your mindset. It changes your way of, of thinking of doing, and you can move more in a positive light. And, and studies have shown that if you use your positive energy more and you gain more of your experiences through your positive thinking, you actually work everything. It really just makes all around better difference for your life. In keeping with your positive self-talk, you're able to work better with your family, with your adult children. It's important to, to keep yourself in it, that positive light because the people around you that also may be depending on you to kind of help in a certain sense. When you put it that way, it seems like something that most of us could do. Just move slowly to deliberately focus on the positives and reframe things in a better light. I'd like to shift gears to just focus on some options for people who might decide that during their next crisis, they want to get some professional help or in between crises because things will always go wrong and it is good to have those in-between relationships established with professionals so that we can face things better. Can we start with options that might be suitable for people with mobility issues? who might not be able to get face-to-face -face help. I've heard recently about something called teletherapy. Well, teletherapy or telemental health is providing therapy or coaching over the phone or via video chat with someone who may not otherwise be able to see therapists in person. For example, someone who lives far away, perhaps a rural area, I provide those services to people who may be pretty busy and they just don't have the opportunity to get to a therapist's office in a timely manner. Every option has a downside, so I want to pull out more options. Um, even though teletherapy seems ideal, perhaps the technology piece might prove to be a barrier for people. What about groups? I see groups on television all the time with people gathered in circles, releasing, and talking to one another. So I do have groups every month of people who come together just to talk about how they can impact their lives in a different way by strengthening their resilience skills. It's very confidential. We talk about different things that's going on in their lives. As a group, we help each other be more productive or handle our adult children or it can be a myriad of different things that they want to talk about. But the point is to try and help them to generate strategies for helping to meet their goals and try and be the best person that we can be in the face of all these challenges. And I do find that some people do tend to appreciate more the group activities and group workshops because they really enjoy listening to other people's stories and having them being listened to as well. So they like to be understood, but they like to also understand other people in going through whatever issues that they may be going through. And it's very therapeutic to just sit and talk to groups of people and then have them give you feedback on how things are going with you, things that you may have questions about that you never even thought to ask, you know? 
know, but you ask in a group and they, they'll give you your honest opinion because they know it's confidential and everyone has equal say in, um, you know, how they tell their story and share their stories. Even if you don't contribute to the group in every session, just listen to some of the stories and just how um, others gain their resilience or maybe even faltered and the group can help them figure out ways so that they can better make a difference the next time something like that happens. I do like the idea of groups because, as you said, it allows you to hear voices other than your own and feel a part of something greater than your own experience. I'm also a big proponent of bibliotherapy. I find for my own life that when I read a book or listen to an audio book or even a podcast that allows me to see my experience from someone else's eyes, it's really helpful. Could getting help during a crisis be as simple as reading a book or writing, perhaps? That's at least the first step for people who otherwise feel shy about going to see a therapist. If it's something that's, you know, are real devastating to them, I would definitely recommend more therapy or coaching sessions. But if, so if it's something that they just really want to learn how to flex their resilience muscles and, you know, move forward in a positive life, then I think bibliotherapy certainly would help as well. Also, in the individual therapy sessions, I do typically give you homework. And part of that homework is journaling and writing in some type of diary or journal or something where you are sharing your experiences and you can share, you can have a choice of whether or not you want to share that with me or if you can just keep it for yourself to see how you're progressing throughout the sessions. Thank you so much, Ms. Bay, for your time. I hope that we're able to interview you again in the near future. Sure. And that our audience members will use some of the strategies you've shared to help build, reinforce, and expand their resilience toolbox. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to Ms. Charlene Phipps and Irva Baton, professional contributors Makeda Bay, Nakia Marie Bilal, and Kanita Bell. Production assistance and sound editing by Jeff Nimsher, Vashali Umrikar, and intern Selena Grover. Editing review and consultation by Melody Coleman. Transcription services by Heather Takanaga, the staff of the Helen Plum and Villa Park Libraries, as well as the board of Words Heal Incorporated. I'm your host and producer, Faiza coleman Your donations make Elder Diaries possible. And I thank you for listening. And now we'll leave you with a final word from Miss Baden that I can accept those limitations as what they are, simple limitations that don't really affect who I am. They may affect what I can do, but internally I am still the same person and probably actually better. I have to admit probably a bit better because of this. But that the physical limitations do not limit my spirit or don't have to. Sometimes it may limit my spirit, but that can be temporary. Anybody that reads this or hears this, it's just don't give up. I know it seems it's hard. It's not that it seems hard. It is hard, and it may seem hopeless, but that's, that's not who you are. That is not who you are.